Open up in your Bible to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. Um, I've never been one for personality tests. I don't know if you have. You've taken personality tests. Uh, a friend shared a link to the Enneagram. I think that's how you say it, the Enneagram. And I began taking it, and I think I got so bored halfway through, I, I gave up. I, didn't, I don't even know what number I am. Um, I didn't finish. I, I don't really, uh, you know, know what to think about some of these things. I, I've never really been big on spiritual gifts tests. Maybe some of you have done those. There's nothing harmful about them. I've just never really taken uh, what is so often given to people as a way to assess themselves and understand who they are and what they do. I've never have done one of those um, just earlier this week, I was on the phone with Geico, and they asked for my birthday, and the lady on the other line said, oh, you must be a Libra. I didn't know what to say. I, I, am I a Libra? I don't know if I'm a Libra or not. I haven't even looked. Um, <laughs> is that what Libras do? They, they don't care about that kind of stuff? <laughs> I don't know. It's not that I, I don't care about self-assessment or, or self-awareness. I, I do think self-awareness is, is good. Um, the question, though, is how do you assess yourself? How are you assessing yourself? How are you evaluating yourself? Because I am firmly aware that we human beings have a high capacity uh, uh, to delude ourselves, that we are highly capable of convincing ourselves of things we want to be true, but may not actually be true. You ever done this yourself? I'm sure maybe you have. Um, you know you have when you've been in an argument, and halfway through that argument, you realize you're wrong, but you keep going with your argument because you don't want to lose. You're able to convince yourself. I mean, we do this stuff. We are able to look in the mirror of our lives to see who we are, but then as, as the analogy of James goes in James chapter one, we immediately forget what we look like. We don't like to evaluate ourselves honestly. We like to believe the best about ourselves, which makes our obedience to the Lord often difficult because we're always trying to convince ourselves we're already obeying perfectly. Uh, I like what Matt Rare said, uh, he's an ER doctor, but he's also a Christian and practices a lot of biblical counseling, and he said this, as a doctor, I've listened to over 15,000 hearts, but the hardest to diagnose is still my own. I think if we're honest, if we're aware, we know that it is incredibly difficult to diagnose your own heart. And to understand what's going on and what's motivating you, what's driving you, why are you doing the things you do, who are you really, what is, what is it at the core of your being that enables you to pursue the things you pursue, what's going on in your heart. And one of the ways that the Bible helps us grow is by providing for us something we can look at and evaluate and even reflect in so that we know who we are and the sins that we're committing the problems that we have and the ways we need to grow. And we are presented in Scripture often the types of people we ought to not imitate. And we're also presented in Scripture the types of people, Jesus being the foremost among them all, the people we ought to imitate. Stories are given to us. Stories of faith 
and victory and stories of failure and defeat, stories of sin. And as we read stories, these stories shape us so that we can know what kind of people we are. I think the scripture is the best test that we ought to take for self-evaluation and self-assessment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul's writing about the Old Testament Israelites who were always complaining in the wilderness, and he says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, we're supposed to read these stories of these complaining Israelites and to see how God responded to their constant complaints and to see the dangers of sin, and we're supposed to go, huh, do I do that? Am I like them? Am I, do I find myself identifying with the Israelites in this? Or you can think of Hebrews on the other side of the spectrum, Hebrews chapter 12, where we're encouraged to run hard after Jesus in light of a great cloud of faithful witnesses who went before us, imitating the faith of those who pursued the Lord and honored the Lord. In other words, we're supposed to read those stories, the stories of faithfulness and victory, and go, huh, do I see myself there? Is that who I am? And in all of Scripture, we are presented with people who are, some are the bad guys and some are the good guys, and all of them are a, a complex mixture of good and bad, except for Jesus, who is pure and good and holy. But we're supposed to evaluate and learn, and in doing so, see who we are and what we are to be. What kind of character are you in this story that God's telling in the world? Am I more like those Israelites that constantly complained, or am I more like the faithful who trusted the Lord in the most difficult of circumstances. And in this scripture this morning, we're gonna get a mirror. We're gonna be able to hold up to ourselves. We're gonna study it. We're gonna see all kinds of different people. There's, there's many different people that are mentioned in this text. And the question I'm gonna ask this morning as we read and study this text is who should we be like? Who should we be like? There's many people here. Who should we be like? Yes, Jesus, and we're going to see that, but who should we be like? Who's, uh, who, whose example should we follow in this particular text? Open up in your Bibles, if you're not there, there already, to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11, and we're going to go through it and start looking at the different characters here and ask ourselves, who should we be like? Whose example should we follow? Verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it out over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the reading of God's word, and may it have an eternal impact on our hearts as we study it this morning. Who should we be like? Let's begin by kind of setting the context. If you look there back in verse 1, two days before the Passover. The Passover is coming on Friday. Remember where we are in the entire Gospel of Mark. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem to the praise of the crowds. It's the last week of his life because on the Passover, Friday, he will be crucified. So it's two days before the Passover. That puts us at Wednesday. Yes, we're finally to Wednesday. We've been on Tuesday for months That was a long Tuesday, and now we're finally in Wednesday, but not much happens Wednesday. Scholars sometimes call it Silent Wednesday, but we do have what's happening here. It says uh, that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, I want to highlight two things that are going on here. First of all, the sovereignty of God in all of this. Mark mentioned as we were preparing for communion that at Passover, the Jews would slaughter a lamb and they would remember their salvation from bondage in Egypt. Do you remember that? The blood would go over the house of the the Israelite. The angel of death would pass over the Israelite and they would be saved by the blood of the lamb. And now, all these years, excuse me, later, here is Jesus who has been called the Lamb of God that was from God, the Lamb of the world, and he now is about to die on Passover. So first notice God's sovereignty and God's providence in all of this, aligning perfectly the events of history so that the Lamb of God will die on the same day that Jews are slaughtering lambs in memorial of their salvation from bondage. What is God communicating? that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He wants it to be loud and clear. But by contrast, what God is doing is not noticed or recognized by the chief priests, these religious leaders. Look at them. They are seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. This is what they've been doing all along. If you remember from the beginning, they've been kind of suspicious of Jesus. And then if you were to glance back at chapter 3, verse 6, you'd see that the Pharisees started teaming up with the Herodians, thinking about how they can destroy Jesus. In chapter 12, verse 12, the Sanhedrins, thinking about arresting him, but they fear the people. Now, their plan is to do it in the dark, to do it by stealth, it says, and they are resolved to kill him. They don't want to do it, verse 2, during the feast. The the feast would have been the Feast of Unleavened Bread mentioned there in verse 1 that would happen for the week after Passover. Remember, the Jerusalem city has swollen in terms of popularity. There's thousands of people who have have come from all over to be in Jerusalem to be a part of the Passover. And it was actually a, a somewhat 
normal occurrence that with this massive mob of people traveling, there would be riots and there would be uproars when people got upset. And they don't want to kill Jesus, okay? They don't want to kill Jesus in the open right now when, when everyone's there and, and all the travelers have come. It'll cause an uproar. But they do set into motion a plan. They do want to kill him, it says, by stealth. So they're planning on waiting about a week. They're waiting for people to get out of Jerusalem and leave. They don't want an uproar or riot from the people. And so they're going to wait. And you say, well, how did that plan actually work out? It actually didn't happen that way, right? They end up killing them in two days. Why? Because of what we read in verses 10 and 11. Because Judas actually speeds up the plan and betrays Jesus to them so that they go, okay, here we go. I guess the timelines move up a little bit. We can kill them quicker. So here's what's going on. The, the, the leaders, the religious leaders, want to destroy Jesus. So our first question, should we be like these religious leaders? It's an obvious question, perhaps so obvious that we don't even need to ask it. The answer, of course, is no. We shouldn't be like these chief priests, these spiritual leaders, these religious elites who have accumulated power for themselves but only use it to promote themselves while putting down those underneath them. We should not be like them. And here I want to pause and provide a lesson for us all. And it is this, that not all religious leaders should be followed or listened to or imitated Remember this truth. Not all religious leaders should be followed or imitated or listened to at all. Certainly these leaders, who were recognized by most everyone in Israel to be the legitimate leaders of the religious activity, they should not be followed. They are not true representatives of the living God. Isn't this kind of ironic? These are the people that are supposed to be masters of God's word. These are supposed to be people who are teachers of God's word. They're supposed to be representatives of God's message. They're supposed to be examples for God's people. And here's the irony of it all. Guess what? They hate God. They hate God. Because when God comes in the person of Jesus Christ, what do they want to do to him? They want to murder him. They want to eliminate him. They don't love God at all. Here they are meant to be representing God, and they hate God. They're, in an, they're, they're opposite God. The actual God they worship is not the true and living God. They worship themselves. Here they are, though. They present themselves as religious. They pray. They give publicly. They study the scriptures. They teach. They lead. And they do it all in the name of God, and yet... They hate God. And this is a lesson, and I want to say this particularly to those of you who are maybe newer Christians. I remember when I was a new believer beginning to follow the Lord, I didn't have any idea of the kinds of people I should listen to or the kinds of people I shouldn't listen to. And I just went to any place to find a book about Christianity. I remember my first foray into a bookstore that had a whole bunch of Christian books and pulling this off the shelf and that off the shelf and thinking that they're all equally good. Why? Because they're all Christian. So I thought, before I realized that, no, there's actually people who pose as religious leaders who teach things that are not aligned with Scripture. And so the test for all teachers, the test for all leaders, 
is do they teach the word of God? Do their lives match up to the word of God? Because it happens all too frequently that teachers twist or corrupt or leave out sections of the word of God. You should not listen to every religious leader, even if they say that they're Christian. You should listen to the scriptures. And you should listen to leaders who teach the scriptures and whose lives follow the example that we find in the scriptures. According to chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, uh, these, these were the leaders that Jesus had just pointed out that they love their position more than they love the people that they're meant to lead. They walk around with long robes, remember? These expensive garments. They love being greeted in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the places of honor at feasts. They're really nice guys, right? Everyone likes these people. I mean, everyone looks up to them. They greet them in the marketplaces, and when Jesus talks to them in Matthew 23, he calls them children of hell, snakes, a brood of vipers. I mean, Jesus saw right through their religious veneer and understood that there was something sinister and devious going on underneath the surface that was deceiving the masses and leading them away from the true and living God. It reminds me of this reality that some of the most dangerous people on the planet are really nice. They're really nice. And they're sometimes likable. And they're sometimes, you know, charismatic. And we want to follow those kinds of people. Reminding me of a book I recently read, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, the third book. That Hideous Strength describes this man named John Wither. He's a great character, not because he's a good guy, but he's old and he's gentle and he's nice and he has a hard time saying a mean word about anyone, but he's at the top of a demonic operation that's bent on destroying people in the name of progress. Watch out for nice guys who twist the scriptures. So here we are asking the question, should we follow these religious leaders? Obviously, the answer is no. It is not them that are the good example we should follow. Let's ask a second question. Should we be like the people? Should we be like the crowds? Look at verse 2. For they said, not during the feast, let there should be an uproar from the people. See, here's people who would get upset if Jesus was killed. They wouldn't like it. These are the people that are sometimes called the crowd all the way through. If you look through Mark and you trace the word crowd or great crowd or the people, you'll find it all the way through up to this point that Jesus has had a great following all along in his ministry. They gathered initially because they heard powerful teaching, and then they heard and saw amazing miracles, and then they were listening to the parables, and then in chapter 6, they were fed, the feeding of the 5,000, probably more like fifteen to 20,000 when you count all the people together, not just the men. People were flocking to Jesus wherever he went, and in general, did people like Jesus? Yeah, they really liked Jesus. I mean, I could get a good square meal from Jesus. You know, he could give me some fish and some loaves, and I might be able to get healed, and I, I might be able to hear something interesting. He was an amazing teacher, and the crowds all followed him. And, and this is an, uh, <clears throat> often what we see here is these, these people really like Jesus, but are we ever told to follow Jesus like the crowds? You know, we're not. It's not the example given to us. In fact, I think this is worth bringing up because there are a lot of people who like Jesus, but they're not following Jesus. They're not 
in a genuine relationship with Jesus. See, the people in the crowds, they knew Jesus. They appreciated Jesus. They even believed in Jesus' power to heal. They had seen miracles. Oh, yes, they liked Jesus, but they didn't follow him. And they weren't his disciples. Jesus, listen, church, Jesus never called us merely to like him. He didn't call us merely to appreciate him. Everyone likes Jesus. And I'll tell you, church, there will be scores of people in hell who liked Jesus. He's not looking for fans. As one preacher put it, Jesus is not looking for distant voyeurs who appreciate him from a distance but are not sure about getting too much involved in following him. No, Jesus is seeking devoted worshipers. How is your relationship with Jesus? There are many people who fill churches all across America. They're all over this very morning in various types of churches who appreciate Jesus. They like him. They believe in general of the good things that he does. But they would not be described as disciples. They would not be considered devoted They do not treasure him, love him, admire him. They keep their distance from him. Oh, yeah, they have a religious veneer. They do religious things. They speak Christianese, but they're more like the people in the crowds. They would be upset if Jesus was killed, but they're not going to die with him. They're not going to be that closely associated with him. Are we to be like these crowds? Are you like the crowds? You do like them, but you're not devoted to them. Look at verse 3. Verses 3 to 9 is a little bit of a flashback. I think a flashback is the best way to describe what's happening here. He begins by talking about, in verses 1 and 2, about what's happening on the Wednesday, but then he flashes back. We know in the Gospel of John that this takes place on the Saturday before the triumphal entry. So he flashes back, and I believe the reason why Mark does this is because he wants to create this incredible contrast between this woman that we've read about and Judas. And so he, he tells the story of this woman approaching them in Bethany. We know from the other accounts that her name is Mary a close friend of Jesus, sister of Martha. And he wants to tell us a story to show us a picture of true devotion. Let's get a little bit of a sense of the context of what's happening here. Verse 3, it says that they are in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Remember, they liked to stay at Bethany before going into Jerusalem. They had friends there. They had Simon's house. They also had Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house all there. And so here it says they're, they're all in a house. We know from the other account that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are all there too, all there with Simon the leper. The 12 disciples are all there. There's a little house in Bethany. It's the Saturday night before Jesus' triumphal entry on Sunday. Who are these people? Well, Simon was probably a man that was healed somewhere along the line in Jesus' ministry. We don't know that for sure. We know that he probably at that point did, this point didn't have leprosy anymore. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't be hosting a whole bunch of people in his house. He was healed, and he was clean, and here are the people now all joining him. Uh, It must have been a a merry time, and yet a very somber time. Jesus had been saying that he's going to enter Jerusalem, that this is going to be the place where he's going to die, 
and they're just on the cusp of doing that very thing. It must have been a very interesting meal. You have Simon, once a leper, there. You have Lazarus, once dead, there, joining them around the table. It says they reclined there, which was a normal way to eat. You'd lay down across a, or on your, on your, kind of your hip, and you put your elbow up, and the table would be down there by you, and you could eat around a table. This is what's happening. There's the disciples. There's Jesus. There's these friends. And so the next question we want to ask are, are these disciples... They're not the crowd. They're, they're closer to, the crowd than, to Jesus than just the crowd. Are they our example? Are they our example? Uh, let's look at what happens. We see there in verse 3 that this woman comes in with this alabaster flask, and she breaks it open, and she pours out the contents on Jesus over his head. But look what happens in verse 4, what these disciples do. It says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? It was a waste, they say. Why was it wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. See, these disciples had seen Jesus show compassion on the sick, touch lepers, healing them, offering forgiveness of sins. They'd seen all these things. Offering forgiveness to the worst of sinners. They had seen him show this kind of love and gentleness with people who did not deserve it. And yet in this moment, they react with a snarl to the worship of this woman. In fact, that word scolded, it says they, they scolded her, is a word that's sometimes used to describe a horse snorting. Like, pfft. Like, look at this woman. Can you believe what she just did? I can't believe she just gave up this highly expensive thing for Jesus. This is too much. Jesus then has to step in in verse 7, look, and correct them. Leave her alone. I love Jesus' stance here. Aggressively stepping in to defend this woman. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. In other words, Jesus is not saying, hey, you're not allowed to care for the poor. That's a bad decision. Why would you want to give, get this money and give it to the poor? He's not saying that. He, Christians have always led the way in being generous to the poor. Look at the history of the church and look at the hospitals that have been started and the orphanages and ways that the poor have been loved and cared for by Christians. He's not saying Christians shouldn't do that. He's saying that there's something unique about this moment right here. What is the, the greatest commandment? You remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? Jesus answers by saying there's two greatest commandments. One is that you love God with all you've got. You, you, love for God is, is the greatest commandment, but there's a second that is attached to it that goes right with it, and that is you love your neighbor as yourself. Remember this? Jesus is pointing out or demonstrating this reality right here would it be wrong to give money to the poor? Of course not. But listen, there is something. There's only, there's only one thing that is a higher priority than loving your poor neighbor as yourself. And what is it? It's loving God. And here she is demonstrating a love for Jesus Christ. Such an amazing demonstration of love and devotion to him that that is the number one priority even above generosity to the poor. 
Think about that. If you're not a Christian and you want to understand Christianity, you need to understand an implication of what's happening here in this text. Because Christianity is not mainly a code of ethics. It's not mainly certain morals that we need to have. It's not mainly that we need to care for the poor or the oppressed, although Christians have all these things. It is mainly about worshiping Jesus Christ. If you want a clear understanding of Christianity, if you're not sure what is at the heart of Christianity, it is this, is that we are not first claiming that we're good people, we're moral people, we have the right ethics, we're the ones who feed the hungry, and we're the ones who give to the poor. That's not where we start. We start with a love and adoration for Jesus. We prioritize him above all else. That's what Jesus is commending this woman for. He is not saying that it would have been wrong to give to the poor. He is saying that it was right to prioritize him. And this is what we need to understand when we're understanding what is at the heart of Christianity. It is Jesus himself, love for Christ. And the disciples see this expression of love and they snort at her. They argue amongst themselves and at her. It's, it's common to see the disciples arguing with one another, but here we see them arguing with her. You see, the disciples might grow up a little bit from this, and they do at some point become examples that we ought to follow, but they're not there yet. The disciples are not the example we are to follow, at least not in this text. But I do want to bring them up to ask you a few questions, because I think we could maybe see ourselves in them sometimes. Sometimes Christians observe other Christians pouring out their hearts in worship, and they become critics of that person's worship. You didn't do it the way I would have done it. You didn't give enough. You gave too much. We become fault finders. Rather than celebrating the grace of God in that person's life, the love that that person has for Jesus, we become self-righteous just like these disciples and we snort at the efforts of worship of other believers. Have you ever observed this in your own heart? That you're watching the sincere faithfulness of another believer and in your heart you suddenly become a fault finder? You begin scrutinizing them with a, and putting upon them such standards that are so high you would never apply them to yourself. <laughs> Amen. I, I hope that we grow out of scrutinizing the faithful obedience and worship of other Christians. Yes, we are called to oversee one another's souls. Yes, we are called to help one another get to heaven. Yes, at time we are called to correct and confront, but we are to do so from a posture of humility, not of self-righteous judgment, and not like these disciples who see a genuine act of worship and they can't bear it. Let's not be like the disciples. Here's another question. Should we be like Judas? Many of you again, are going, of course, I know the answer to this. I've been in church all my life. I know that G Judas is the exact opposite of what I should be like. Let me th let's think about him for a little bit. Judas is one of the disciples, isn't he? 
one of those who were called to be with Jesus, who followed him around for three years. We're not told very much about Jesus up to this point. We do know from the other gospel accounts that Judas was actually given the responsibility to hold the money. He was the treasurer of the group, which means that at some level, the other disciples trusted him to a degree. I mean, he was put in a position where he was given responsibility to watch over the funds of the group. Uh, It also says that Judas was really the driving force behind the criticism of this woman. John makes it clear that Judas was the one who kind of lodged this this, uh, accusation against her and suggested that they should have used the money for the poor. But we also know from the other accounts that the disciples joined right in with Judas when he made the claim. And that means that he did have some measure of influence with the other men in the group. So he had been doing this for many years. He had been at some level trusted. He had some measure of influence with the other people. And think about this. Think about this guy. He had followed Jesus around for now three years. He had seen miracle after miracle. He had heard all the teachings, not just the public teachings. He also heard the private teachings that only the 12 disciples got to hear. The, you know, the intimate times with Jesus, he got to be a part of that. And even beyond that, more than that, you know that Jesus was, or sorry, Judas was sent out by Jesus to go preach the gospel and to cast out demons? Judas did that. Judas did that. Judas went out preaching the gospel. Judas went out casting out demons. In other words, Judas got to experience some of the power of God in his own life, in his own teaching. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. How quick the telling and how eternal the consequence. Why did he do it? Look at verse 11. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. It's quite pathetic sounding, isn't it? To betray the Son of God for money? We're told in other places that it was 30 coins, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, It says that the... Chief priests were glad. You can almost see, can you see it? The devilish smile on the chief priests' faces as Judas approaches them and works out a plan to get Jesus in their hands so they can kill him. They promised to give him money, and that was it. That's that's what put him over the edge. Pathetic, really. Jesus who made all creation, who promises an infinite, imperishable inheritance to all who trust in him, who promises the new heavens and the new earth to be the playground for all God's redeemed for all eternity. It's all ours, church, in trusting Jesus. All of it could have been Judas's. But he wanted this handful of coins instead. It's like a kid choosing to stuff his pockets with monopoly money. When diamonds and jewels and most precious rubies are offered to him, and they go, oh, no, 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 I don't want that. He betrayed the Son of God for a handful of coins, and I bring him up. 
I know that you know that you shouldn't act like Judas. And I will say anyway that there are Christians acting like Judas every hour of every day, betraying the Son of God for material possessions, for conveniences and comforts, because it is too hard to be faithful for, to Jesus. It's too much to obey him. We'd rather just be comfortable. We'd rather seek wealth. We'd rather, be, not, we'd rather not be inconvenienced. They prefer money and material possessions over Jesus himself. They would never say it out loud, but maybe the career speaks volumes. Their career demonstrates they love their money more than they love Jesus. Or their life schedule demonstrates they love their money more than they love Jesus. The way they talk to their children says they love money more than they love Jesus. I wonder about you. Does your life revolve more around maintaining personal comforts Material wealth, or does it revolve more around worshiping and adoring and serving Jesus Christ? Judas did not treasure Jesus. He didn't. He treasured money. Money was his treasure. I wonder about you. If we could do a little soul searching and ask ourselves those hard questions and evaluate ourselves, do we treasure Jesus most? Is he our treasure? Is he our joy? Do we delight in him? Is he our praise? Is he our delight? Is he what we're living for? Or if we're honest, would our bank accounts tell another story? Would our wallets tell another story? What we actually love is ourselves and money. No, we're not to be like Judas. But we ought to recognize that we sometimes act like him. Let me point out again as a warning. I want you to consider how close Judas was to Jesus and yet was not saved. He was so close. The inner 12, the treasurer, saw it all, experienced it all. And yet Jesus will say about him that it would be better if he was never born at all, which means that he will face eternal judgment in hell. But for three years, he looked just like one of the 12 disciples. He looked legitimate. I wonder if that's true of anyone here, that there's an appearance of faithfulness and commitment Deep down within, there's a Judas heart. Actually, is only following Jesus insofar as it's convenient. And as soon as it becomes costly, you will no longer follow him. Are you like a Judas? So close and yet so far? Let's ask the last question. Are we to be like this woman? Jesus defends her. In verse 6, leave her alone, he says. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus describes this woman's actions as beautiful, inherently good, objectively good. This is, in our text, the model to follow. This woman 
And I want to point out five elements of her devotion that we ought to imitate. These points won't go as long as the previous ones, but we'll go quickly through five points, five elements of her devotion that we ought to imitate, that they're presented to us as a beautiful thing that we ought to know and imitate in our own lives. And I, will, I believe this will challenge us, convict us, humble us, and Lord willing, motivate us to follow the example of this woman. Let's start with the first. First, she proactively pursued Jesus. Look there in verse 3. As he was, this is the second part of verse 3, as he was reclining at table, a woman came to him. The woman came on her own. There's no one provoking her. There's no one prodding her. There's no one coercing her. She comes to Jesus on her own. There's no one forcing her to do this. She's considering what she has. She's considering who she is. She's considering who Jesus is. And she is compelled from within to come to Jesus. Let me ask you, how often are you coming to Jesus? You see, this woman had an opportunity that was a once-in-a-lifetime thing, this, the, the, the very Son of God there in her house with the people that she loves. And she has this opportunity to come to him and to pour out her love and affection in a very unique and specific way. But listen, how often can you come to Jesus? When can you come to Jesus? Anytime, any place, for whatever reason, Jesus says, come to me, come to me. And I want to ask you, how often are you coming to Jesus, flooding into the gates of his household and calling upon him and clinging to him and praising him? And I want you to notice that she doesn't come only when she has a request to make. She makes no request here. She simply expresses love This week, if you were to look back at the previous seven days, have you ever just privately worshipped Jesus Christ? Have you ever just went to him, just filled with praise, thankfulness, gratitude, saying, thank you, Lord, I'm going to praise you for how wonderful you are. Have you done that this week? It is something that every Christian should do every day of our lives. Secondly, she gave a very costly gift. It says here that it was an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. You say, what's, what's nard? Nard was an oil that was extracted from rare plants in northern India. Very expensive. You can actually buy it today. I just Googled. It's, it's also called spike nard. And you, if you were to buy uh, a 16-ounce bottle of pure organic spike nard, it would cost you a cool $3,952.73. That's, that's today's dollars when this is obviously made more available. It's easier to ac- get ac- access to. Here, this woman has this bottle. We don't know how she got it. It doesn't say in the text, maybe a family heirloom passed down from generation to generation. If we were to... Uh, uh, come up with a number that this would be worth in today's dollars, we could look at that word 300 denarii. That's what the disciples thought it was worth, which is a whole year's worth of wages. And so we're talking somewhere between sixty dollars to $80,000 that this would be worth. And here she goes, spilling it all on the head of Jesus. This is a small fortune. Judas's eyes must have gone buggy as he sees the liquid money dripping off Jesus' head and filling the ground here. And she's doing it, why? For Jesus. She just loves Jesus. I want him. 
to experience this. I want this to be for him. Beautiful is how Jesus describes this. It's costly, wasn't it? This woman is sixty to $80,000 poorer as a result of this act of worship. And let me ask you, would you call her irresponsible? Dare you? Knowing what Jesus said about what she has done, call her irresponsible? Dare you suggest that she better spend it some way else? Church, what would it look like for you to imitate her? Look back at your life. Again, let's just evaluate one week at a time. Have you ever, actually, let's start with this last week. Have you ever this last week given anything costly to Jesus? Time, energy, money, pouring yourself out just simply because you love Jesus. You want to express it. The love in your heart is welling up and you want to express it in some way. I got to do something. I love him. You express your love for Jesus and maybe you say, well, I didn't do it this week. And I would ask you, have you ever given anything costly for Jesus? What does it mean about your discipleship and your Christianity if it never costs you anything? In what sense can you really say that you've taken up your cross, that you're denying yourself, and you're following him if Jesus has never called you to do anything costly or if you have never given him anything of any value? If you're not making any sacrifices, I don't know if it's Jesus that you're following because Jesus sacrificed himself, and he's our example. Third, she held nothing back. It says that she broke the flask, which was a way of saying these flasks were sealed, and there wasn't a little you know, cork that you could take out and put back in. There wasn't a little screw-it-on cap. This was something that it was, if you broke it, it's all coming out, and there's no way to conserve it after it's broken. That's the way this thing was. And she broke it, and she poured it all out. There was none left over. It says there in verse 8, look at verse 8. Jesus says that what she has done, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Here Jesus even begins again predicting his death. It was not common, or I should say it was common in those days that if you were being killed as a criminal, you wouldn't get a proper burial. You wouldn't get the same anointing. You wouldn't get all the, your body get cleaned up. You kind of just get buried rather quickly. And so Jesus knew that if, he was going to die. He wouldn't receive from the Jews or Romans. If he's dying as a criminal, he wouldn't get the anointment that a body normally would. But here, he gets this anointing from this woman, and he sees this, and he recognizes this is something prophetic. She's preparing me for my burial because I know I won't be getting this because I will be treated as a criminal. And I love those words. You see them there where it says that she has done what she could that she gave what she could, she had something, and she gave it to him, and I wonder if that's true of us. Is this true of us, that we are doing what we could? That's a great way to put it. Jesus is not requiring of her more than she has. Jesus is requiring nothing of that sort, where he demands of us something impossible for us to give. Rather, she's commending her because she is doing all she could. She had something, she gave it to Jesus, and Jesus commends that. 
You see, whatever you have in the wallet of your life ought to be spent for Jesus Christ. Are you spending it for him? I had a uh, football coach, Coach Stevenson, back in high school. And during the practices, especially during the conditioning weeks before the games would begin, he would tell us, I want you to work so hard in practice that you're leaving it all on the field. You ever heard that phrase? I want you to leave it all on the field. It was a phrase that came to be commonplace in, in practices and in games, that when you're playing, you want to pour out all your efforts and all your energies. You want to give everything you've got so that when you're walking off the field, you're not skipping along with all kinds of leftover energy. You want to be barely able to get off that field. Like our coach would have loved it if they got a gurney out to carry us off the field because we had so drained ourselves in practice and in the games. Leave it all on the field. Have nothing left. And isn't that kind of the theme here of what Jesus is calling his people? Leave it all. I grew up uh, following Jesus in a, a very immature ways. And I remember one of the statements that was said to me as I was a college student finally beginning to understand the meaning of discipleship and following Jesus, and I remember these words very clearly having an impact on my soul, and it was that your life is meant to be spent, not saved. Are you spending it, your life? Are you spending your energies for Jesus? Who here wants to come to the end of your life tortured with regret that you were holding back Church, give yourself away. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Believe that and give yourself away. Give yourself to this local church. Give yourself to other believers and helping them follow Jesus. Give yourself to your neighbors and telling them the gospel. Give yourself away to the mission God has called you to. Give yourself away and you will receive a greater blessing than you will ever have obtained by trying to hold it all for yourself. She held nothing back. Fourth, she wanted nothing in return. She wanted nothing in return. She didn't want praise. She didn't want recognition. She didn't want the rest of the guys there to acknowledge what she'd done. She just did it because she loved Jesus. In fact, she even has to face the scolding of these men as she worships and I want to point out that there are so many people here that are doing things for the Lord Jesus Christ that no one else notices, that will never get public praise, that will never get brought up front, and no one will ever see the impact of their service, but they're doing it in private, and Jesus sees. And if I never personally say thank you, I want you to know that Jesus sees. And he says, it's a beautiful thing for you to pour out your life not expecting to get the accolades of the people around you, but merely saying it's because I love Jesus. Excel still more, church, in serving in ways that are obscure that no one else notices just because you love him. And last, I want to point out that she reflected the gospel in her generosity. Look at this. Verse 9. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Her devotion will be shared wherever the gospel goes. You know, what we're doing this morning is a fulfillment of this prophecy, isn't it? I'm telling you the story of this woman as I'm about to preach the gospel to you. 
And, and Jesus is exactly right. And why is this the case? Is because what this woman does is a picture, it's a reenactment really, of what Christ did, isn't it? That the gift of something so extravagant and expensive that this woman gives is a small reflection of what Jesus has done. That Jesus has given something more greater, more powerful. He didn't pour out an ointment. He shed his blood. He left the palaces of heaven. He came to this fallen world. He took on a body that could, be, could, that could suffer, that could be whipped, that could be scourged, that could be killed. And he gave himself up to die on a cross so that he would in that moment be treated as a sinner. That he would take upon himself the guilt and the sin and the shame of everyone who turns and trusts in him. We, church, are here because Jesus Christ is so generous, so benevolent, so kind, so lavish, that this woman is just a faint picture of the great love of Jesus Christ. He has given so much more than anything we could ever give. And when you stare at that, think about this, when you stare at the gospel and you let it marinate and you let it flavor your soul, you know what begins to happen? You begin to reenact it in your own life. That the gospel that has so transformed you that it begins to transfix you, it begins to shape you that you go, I want to be like that. It's been said that Jesus is like a hurricane. The way you know he's pulling you in is that you feel yourself being hurled back out and hurled back out toward others in love, in generosity, in sacrifice, in evangelism, in discipleship. When the gospel hits you and you recognize the great mercy and love of God, suddenly you want to imitate his great mercy and his great love and his great patience and you want to move toward others. And his church actually sent out a group of men and women to an unreached portion of their city to begin a Bible study with the intention to plant a church there. Many people in his family were surprised that he was doing this. And the man said as he was packing up the familiar and moving to a really hard place, he said, hey, Jesus left everything for the sake of the mission. Shouldn't we also? If we have leave jobs, if we leave family, friends, familiarity, our first culture, even our beloved home church to reach them, isn't that still far less than what he left for us? It is. I could tell you story after story of people who are infatuated with the gospel to the degree that it shapes their whole lives. I'll tell you, just more, this happened recently over at Grace Seamy, our, our sending church. Uh, they received this year a $2 million check anonymously from a member of the church. You know what my conclusion to that is? A, God answers prayers. B, someone's infatuated with the gospel because you don't become that generous unless you have seen the glory of Jesus Christ. And so this isn't a, a, a sermon on give more because you feel guilty. No, no, no. This is, look at Jesus, who was rich and became poor so that he, in his poverty, might make many rich. In church, are we rich? 
We are rich beyond our wildest dreams. And the riches, we've only tasted a little hint of the glories to come that is ours. Look at this woman. And my challenge to you, let's just get really practical, is to wake up tomorrow morning and say, how can I imitate this? Can, can I be like this today? Can I give to Jesus? Can I offer something to Jesus? Can I devote myself to Jesus? What can I sacrifice for Jesus? Because I love him. Whether it's time, whether it's overcoming something challenging, whether it's overcoming an obstacle, what can you do, even if it's great cost to yourself, to imitate Jesus? Reflect on this tomorrow morning. And don't let that little voice in your head say, oh, that's too far. You're overdoing it. Don't become like a disciple. No, it's not worth it to do all that for Jesus. Express your love for him with the extravagance that he deserves. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are reminded of how blind we are to your glory, how desperately needy we are to see the majesty of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we behold him, that we would become like him. And that as we become like him, we imitate this woman who poured it all out, expecting nothing in return, even at great cost to herself. Help us, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.